Welcome to Beyond the Roadmap, Product Talk with AWH, a podcast for product people, by product people. Join us as experts share their experiences and expertise to help you build great products. Hi, this is Ryan Frederick with AWH, and I'm here having a conversation with Tim Simeone, digital product owner at SafeLight. Is it SafeLight? It's just SafeLight now, right? It's not SafeLight Autoglass. It's not SafeLight you know, Corporation. Well, there's a couple different streams of business within SafeLight. Okay. Yeah. We've been, our parent name is SafeLight. Yeah. Okay, cool. I thought that was the case. Yeah. Uh, but I've also seen some other representations of it where it seemed to have some other um, variations attached to it. So thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, we met as part of the Customer Experience Professional Association Columbus chapter. So that's a mouthful to get yeah. out. And so maybe as customer experience people and people that care about that, maybe we should actually find a different, you know, a, a shorter way to reference that. <laughs> yeah, so, that it's, so it's easier in context like this. I agree. Yeah. So as you think about customer experience as a whole, and then as it relates to products, right? How do you sort of frame when someone sort of says, how do you define customer experience? What's Tim's definition of what customer experience is? Yeah, that's a good question. I think my definition is is from the notion of somebody deciding to engage with your brand all the way to them giving feedback at whatever end of experience they had, considering all that entire life cycle and journey of the customer, applying kind of like data to it to understand the entire journey, applying like gathering feedback from the customer. So both anecdotal and quantitative feedback that kind of provides an overall understanding of the customer journey and then developing solutions that enhance that customer experience throughout the entire journey. So considering it, even though you might be only responsible for one portion of it, considering it as a whole experience. Yes, you mentioned data and you mentioned both sort of anecdotal and and then um, more analytical and sort of definable uh, data. How do you marry and balance the two? Do you give more credibility and credence to anecdotal and sort of experiential of what you're seeing or to the more hard sort of facts and statistics and analytics that you're that you're seeing, yeah. how do you marry those? Because that seems to be a challenge for many organizations is they get sort of anecdotal feedback from customers, but then when they go look at the analytics, sometimes those things even conflict, and then it's hard to sort of ferret out what should we be doing and how should we be reacting to this. Yeah, I think you have to have both, right? Like you have to have the qualitative feedback to really humanize the customer experience, and I think if you just have the analytical portion and you're seeing maybe weird web activity, it doesn't really humanize that experience. So uh, as far as like gaining traction to fix something like that, sometimes providing the human aspect of some customer verbatim, for example, might help somebody you know, gain traction and actually solving an opportunity or solving a problem that our customer, like a customer is sharing within their web behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So sometimes the quantitative, if you will, might be shining a light on a qualitative issue, but you don't yet have the qualitative context behind what the data and the analytics are sort of saying. Yeah, I think of it like if it w- like when you get sick, right? Like you wake up in the morning and you maybe have like an itchy throat. And you're like, that's kind of weird. 
And then by the time you get to lunch, you're like, well, I'm not really hungry, but maybe I just had a big breakfast. That's also weird. And then you get to the end of the day and you're like, God, I'm exhausted, right? So like that's your qualitative feedback that you're giving to yourself. But ultimately you need that quantitative data to say, okay, like now I need to take my temperature and I'm gonna take my temperature and yeah, I actually do have a fever, right? And now I'm sick. And then it's like, well, what do I do with that? Ultimately you need to handle it the way that is best for you, right? So like that's the brand portion of it that I think comes into play as well within the qualitative, the quantitative, and then like how do you solve the problem? from your brand's perspective. So why do you care about this stuff? Why do you care about customer experience? Why do you care about customer experience as part of digital products? Give us a little bit of sense of your background and then and why this for you is as your craft. Yeah, totally. So I I kind of probably came to this career a little bit differently than other people. I started as a theater major. Uh, in college and had a little bit of an acting career oh, in theater wow. in Chicago for a little bit. Would give, would give us a sense of what kind of plays you were in. Uh, so I was in um, a show called Brothers Karmasov, which is like an adaptation of a Russian novel uh, at the Looking Glass Theater in Chicago. But like, and then like as an actor, like though probably the way I got into more retail and customer experience was like, you know, when you're an actor, you you have a job for three months, however long the show is, and then you're fired until you find another acting job. And so in between that, you're working retail or you're working in a customer service role. And so I started working at Patagonia Chicago in their retail store and working for the Cubs in like a customer service role. And then we moved to Columbus and I ended up landing a job at Abercrombie. And that's kind of how I got into like the, I saw like retail at its most ground level. And then got to see it from the corporate side and then really uh, kind of had a heart for making sure that, you know, the decisions that were happening in corporate were making sure that a good customer experience was happening down at the store level and really making sure that the people who were delivering that customer experience had the tools to, to do it right. So that's kind of how, how I got into it a little bit. Yeah, that's a great perspective. The yeah. fact that it's rooted in what is that team member and what is that customer experience like at the moment of truth, right? When someone's in a store, presumably, or, you know, for the Cubs being in, in customer service, right? When someone's engaging with the organization in some way, maybe at the ballpark or pre-ballpark um, as part of a ticket, you know, or merchandise experience. So that's interesting because I think that probably keeps you rooted in an empathetic position for the customer and the team member who are having that very intimate experience as part of some sort of transaction and experience. Totally. I remember when I was working retail at Patagonia, I was like, we had just started accepting PayPal on Patagonia.com. And I was working, you know, in the stores and people would come in with PayPal returns all the time. And it was like, we didn't have a way to refund their money back. So they would order online and they couldn't return to store if they paid with PayPal. So we would have to like Xerox their receipt, take their item, pack it and tell them, you might get a refund in like 10 days. And so it was like really, this really arduous process that we had to go through. And, you know, when I got to Abercrombie Corporate, it was like, oh, it's actually really hard to execute a refund of a PayPal return in store. And so like I got to see both sides of it and kind of understood the complexity on both ends. And it's like, oh, my God, you know, as a retail associate, you're like, God, I just wish don't they know that this is a problem? And then the answer was probably yes, they knew it was a problem, but it's really complex at the time to issue a PayPal return. So I think that perspective has helped me a lot, especially within SafeLight. It's like, we don't want to launch a feature onto a site that maybe increases conversion, but makes it really hard for our techs to deliver a great customer experience. So 
we're always looking when we implement features on the site like we can't just look at does this increase conversion we have to look at the whole spectrum of like does this actually make it easier for our techs to deliver a great customer experience because ultimately they're the ones that are going and replacing the windshield and doing those things so that's something that SafeLight was already doing before I got there, but I was glad to see that like we're not just looking at conversion, we're looking at the whole picture. Yeah, the ability to connect the digital experience to the operational execution capability and experience is lost on many, right? It becomes, oh, let's just focus on the digital. The digital team just focuses on the digital, and then some other business unit that has operational um, execution responsibility then has to deal with whatever, the, whatever those ramifications are. And sometimes those ramifications are negative for team members and certainly negative for customers. Yeah, totally. And, and that was a little bit of my experience at Abercrombie. It was I started in customer service. Like I started managing the customer service for all of the stores. So I got to see all of the, the things that fell through the cracks, like just like random exceptions that you, you solve for the happy path and most exceptions, but ultimately everything ends up hitting customer service, right? So I have a, you know, a soft spot in my heart for contact center associates as well, because you get everybody who's on the unhappy paths. Totally. Yeah. We, we, we would, you know, as the people who manage the contact centers, we would take calls too. And it would be like, oh my gosh, we need to, we need to solve this problem. Like we, we have to, this is like so hard to deal with. And then you have to convince the rest of the organization that this is this is an exception that we have to, to fix. So. Yeah. So why do you think you care about this? What is in you that makes you empathetic with customers and to want to give customers a better experience, whether it was at Patagonia and, and being frontline or at Abercrombie yeah. sort of in a, in a customer service position and then ultimately in, in more digital stuff there and certainly at SafeLight as part of um, – digital products there. Yeah. Well, I think with all the companies that I've worked for, there has been a focus in like customers. Like how do we center everything around the customer? And that's like a great mission in general. But I think when I started at Patagonia, like they gave their retail associates like full power to please the customer. So like they had this thing called the ironclad guarantee. And so a frontline associate could just, a part-time associate, like just you started maybe a week ago, you could just give somebody a free jacket that let's say so say you like lost a bunch of weight or something you're like ah it's just not quite fitting me not in the spirit of the guarantee but you could say you know what let's just get you a jacket that fits you because you came here expecting something to happen and i have the power to to, to fix your problem and so that from that start of like oh my gosh i have so much freedom to just make this a good experience i've just been kind of passionate about like how do i recreate that in other environments and so when I got to Abercrombie, it was, you can't just be like, I think we should, you know, have a lifetime guarantee. You, you have to prove out every little thing just to, to make your case, right? Like, ultimately, you have to have a good business case to make changes to the customer experiences, which is where I kind of learned data analysis, where it's like, as soon as I got into Abercrombie, I was like, guys, we have to fix this one problem. They were like, how often is it happening? Where is it happening? How much is it costing us? Like, so you, you have to find out all those different areas that it's impacting the business to prove that case. And it was, at Patagonia, it was super easy because you just, you had that power. And in the corporate environment, you really have to kind of prove it out. And so like, through each of those steps, I kind of became more and more interested. And I, I liked the game of having to prove out that this is a problem and prove that this is causing, you know, not only immediate cost to the company, but also like, future costs in customer loyalty going forward, right? Like if you have a bad experience today, you're not likely to have another experience with the brand or you're not likely to go back and 
you know, shop at that brand. So I like, I started to like the game at Abercrombie a lot where it was like, okay, how do I prove that this is a problem? I can't just say that it's a problem. I need the data to do that. And so that, that was kind of where I learned the data piece of it. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Why when we talk about companies being customer centric and customer experience um, focused, why is that unique? Right. It seems like it's still fairly unique and it's kind of an, a, a business epiphany. Yeah. Right. That if we focus on the customer, we will have a better business and customers will be happier and they'll be and they'll be loyal, et cetera. Yeah. Why is it still fairly unique in that context? Why is in every company customer centric and, and customer experience focus? Is it just so hard to pull off? I think it's hard to measure. I think if you ask most companies, like, are you focused on the customer? They would say yes, right? Right. But I think uh, when it comes down to, like, the business case of customer experience, it's really hard to prove, right? Like, there's some people who've taken NPS and said, okay, we're going to tie the financial impact to NPS, which was something that we did at my last job. And, you know, that helps, but it's still kind of like a soft metric. It's not like, you know, when you're looking at year-over-year comps and the cost is down, you can't really say, like... Well, in five years, you know, we're going to be, you know, on the trend up because we have a great customer experience. So I think it's just difficult to measure and nobody's really figured out a great way to put that financial piece to it. There's a lot of companies that are trying right now. Like if you look at the industry right now, there's Medallia, there's Qualtrics, there's InMoment, like all these different customer experience management tools that are starting to tie transactional data to survey feedback and the NPS score and stuff like that. And so I think that is is helping, but I don't think it's quite there yet where we feel all real good about the measurement of that. It usually has to come along with some other KPIs that are proving out, focusing on the customer matters. NPS is an interesting measurement to me yeah, because it feels like it started out very uh, pure and it's now become misused and sort of bastardized. And it almost like a crutch where organizations will say, oh, well, our MPS score is, is 9.7, so we're fine. Yeah. Right? And then it just becomes, well, let's just you know, make sure we're above a 9, and then, we'll, then we can feel good about the fact that we're, we're serving customers well and we're taking care of customers. And so it feels like it's lost some of its, its meaning and its value. Do you see it that way, or is MPS still something that, that you think is, is providing the – the value and the context yeah. that it was meant to provide. I don't know if there's, I haven't seen anything better than it now, right? Like, I think the value in NPS is that from like a frontline associate to the CEO, everybody can be speaking the same language, right? So like everybody, like a frontline associate would know what a detractor is and so would the CEO. And I think everybody, the value in it is that everybody can talk the same language about where you stand in yeah, the customer good point. experience. Right. And I think that's harder to do if you're just like, well, one to five, are you satisfied or are you not satisfied? You know, I'm a one or I'm a two. Like, what does that even mean? So I think it gives people a common language. But I do agree with you. I think people are using it. And, like, one struggle we had was, like, to transactional NPS versus a relational NPS. So, mm. like, a brand affinity quarterly study against your competitor NPS versus you just made a purchase NPS. And so, like, I think those get confused. And so I think... There is some issues with it, but I think ultimately it, it allows us to use one question, one metric, so we're not putting the customer through you know, some of these longer 
surveys, when you look at like a 4C survey, for example, they do kind of company benchmarking, but they're also asking the customer like 42 different questions, which is just a terrible customer experience, which is ironic because you're <laughs> you know, trying to improve the customer experience, but putting them through this dreadful survey. Right. Experience. Let us help you serve you better by making this really, really painful for yeah. the help. And I think with NPS and asking only one question, again, like tying it to the quantitative piece, like you have to start saying like, okay, we're hearing this from our customers, but like, what is it in the context of their experience? So like start tying transaction and transactional information to that. So like if everybody's calling in and if we're hearing from our survey data saying like, oh, my, I had a really bad experience. It was just really bad. And we know that, you know, FedEx delivered their packages late. You know, we can go to the supplier and it, it helps it be more actionable when you start to tie those transactional pieces to it. Right, sure. So just looking at NPS just as is, I think is, you could be very reactive to it, but looking at it in the context of like, the entire picture and tying other data points to it, I think it becomes more actionable within a company. Yeah, for sure. Let's um, talk about customer experience as it relates specifically to building digital products and, yeah. and software. So how do you see customer experience and CX as sort of a discipline in the product creation and sort of enhancement process? Yeah, I think so... In my mind, it's it's kind of like a trifecta. It is voice of customer. You have to have some sort of feedback stream from the customer. So like at SafeLight, we have an end of funnel survey, and then we also do usability sessions. We sit with our chat agents. We go for ride-alongs with our techs to really kind of get that internal feedback. And then web analytics, so like some sort of like external data that you're gathering about their experience, whether it's web behavior or downstream operational data, and then your brand and like how you would solve potentially an opportunity that you discover through voice of customer or through the data that you're seeing. So like, how would you handle a situation where you know a customer is giving you feedback about something that you validated within data? How would your brand handle that opportunity? So in my mind, it's it's constantly figuring out what feature is bubbling up through our feedback that's been validated by data. And then how are we handling that as SafeLight or as whatever brand, you know, you work for? If you're getting feedback or you're even exploring sort of a net new piece of functionality yeah. or, or maybe even a net new product, so you don't have any analytics around it yet, yeah. how do you um, sort of balance that brand piece and maybe the vision and the opportunity that you see as a company yeah. with then going out and doing some of that, that user research and, and validation to then see if you are on the right track or if you're, if you're misaligned. How do you do that if you don't have any um, you know, quantitative analytics to be able to look at? Yeah, so I think, that, I think there's a couple of things. Like if you don't have data already, there are still things that data has told you about your customer in the past that informs that new net new experience, right? So like, you know, preference based on previous tests, potentially that of features that might be similar or things that you're going to implement in this feature that might be similar. Those things. Um, sorry, I forgot where I was going with that. No, it's okay. Cause I was actually going to chime in too. Okay. In that You can't, what you're kind of saying is you can't let yourself off the hook and you can't give yourself an escape hatch by saying you don't have any quantitative data around yeah. this new thing because you have some that is probably at least tangential to the thing that you're doing 
unless you're talking about building a product in a completely different industry, right, than, than the one that you're operating in yeah. as a company, right, you, it's kind of a little bit of a cop-out if you say you don't have any quantitative data to sort of help inform it. Yeah, like I think you're always constantly learning about your customer, and so you have to take those learnings into whatever you're designing net new, but also like prototyping and getting into a usability session with your customer is, is kind of how we handle that at SafeLight is like, we know something new is coming, we're going to design it with the knowledge that we have of the customer, and then we're going to show it to them in a controlled setting and, and get their feedback on it. And, and then like once we feel like we're close, then we'll put it into an A-B test and, and get it in front of our real customers as soon as possible. Because if we get that MVP built, then we can you know, start learning right away. Right. Yeah. How do you balance and what's the crossover between customer experience CX and getting that feedback and, and the doing that usability and, get, and doing that user validation with UX and the ultimate experience that's going to get built? How are the CX people and the UX people sort of overlapping and collaborating yeah. to make sure that the experience that actually gets created is in alignment with that feedback and that customer experience that you know you want to deliver. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't ever met a UX person that really loves when a CX person brings them a solution, right? So like in my mind, like uh, the customer experience and the user experience, that bridge is like the customer experience is presenting the problem in the most specific way possible. And to me, like I've always had good experiences with UX people when it's like, hey, this is the opportunity that we have. We're kind of lay out all the data we're seeing, you know, people drop off on this page, a lot of, you know, scroll on this page. Some people are focusing on this area of the site. We think that this is, you know, an opportunity for us. How would you solve that? And I think that's where a UX person really shines is like, oh, okay, let me go take this away and bring something back. And then, and then it's a collaboration of like, the UX person presenting that that new design, and then the CX person saying, "Like, is this really solving that customer's problem? Like, is this really getting at the root cause of what this was really about?" And so, kind of keeping people on track that way. How much collaboration is there between CX and UX while UX is coming up with the potential solutions and, and concepts to the problem? Does UX sort of go away and then come back and then say, oh, I've, I've, I've identified four ways to potentially solve this? Or is CX working with them throughout that process and helping to inform and sort of be the, the customer representative to say, hmm, that path you're headed down, right, that, that experience, yes, it's going to solve this problem, but it also might create some complication in another area that we don't have any feedback and validation around yet. Yeah, totally. I think I think it has to be constant collaboration because I think when a UX person goes away to design it, like they're going to come up with more questions, right? Like then then the CX person maybe like anticipated, and so getting great answers to those questions, I think, is super important and informs the design even further. So I think constant collaboration and kind of quick check ins here and there is the probably the way that it works best in my experience. Yeah, as you think about when something's now created, yeah. And you think about the rollout and sort of the onboarding and, and adoption piece, too. Yeah. That's an area that, that many product people and companies um, are still challenged with because we feel like, okay, we did good user research and good user validation, and we, we think that we've built a good experience based upon that, and we've gotten good feedback right on that experience. And then it gets rolled out, and then the rollout and, and the sort of... A, um, 
the onboarding and adoption of that new functionality or that yeah. new product then is lacking. So that it's kind of customer experience coming in on the back end right now of yeah. it, right? Of, of now, how does that in, get introduced to customers? How have you seen that work the best? And, and how can companies get better at what appears to be a challenge for many still where they've built presumably the right thing, but then the introduction and the rollout and the onboarding of it is is less than great? Yeah, I think you have to have a good measurement plan bef- like as you're launching uh, something like that into the world. Like I think... You have to try and anticipate all the different things that you want to measure. So like when you launch that and you see maybe bad adoption, you can kind of go to the different measurement tags that you've had implemented within that feature and start to understand like where is it lacking. But I think too, like you have to understand uh, in the context of the larger sites, like if we launch a a thing onto our site, like we know that that will affect other areas of the site. So how do you consider what this feature has done as a whole to the experience, not just... Right, nothing happens in a vacuum, right? totally. So everything's kind of connected. Yeah, I guess that's a challenge. If you're building a net new product, right, you've got the challenge of sort of friction, right, of of, uh, with a net new product, a, a user has to make a conscious decision to stop what they're doing now, presumably, for the new reality of using your new product. Yep. In the case of... SafeLight and, and enhancing the digital products that you already have out there, it is, I, there's still some degree of friction, right, of, oh, of, yeah. of a new feature and, and some new aspect of the site, but then there's also that sort of ripple impact that the site fundamentally had to change yeah. to accommodate something new, so there's, you're almost creating friction, not by the creation of a new product, but maybe by a new module or a new feature that then also affects other aspects of the site that maybe customers got really comfortable with, yep. right? Yeah. The overall workflow and sort of where things were. And, and, and if you break all of that, now the customer familiarity goes away and now you've created friction because the familiarity maybe has gone away of what, they're, what they've been used to. Totally. And I think it's a little bit different with SafeLight where, you know, at Abercrombie, maybe you're coming back to the site multiple times, you know, a month or within the quarter or whatever, but with SafeLight, it's a little bit less. So we are constantly in a position where we're more training our customers every time. So like every time that they come back to their site, you know, it probably will be different and hopefully better, you know, but uh, will they remember the last time they're like, will they remember what the web experience was last time? So we don't have as many like repeat customers as we do just brand new customers, or even if they are repeat, it was probably you know three or four years ago when they had their last damage to their windshield. So in that way, we we're constantly thinking of like we have to like really hold the customer's hand through this sales funnel so that you know they're able to book their appointment easily. Yeah, and how have you found the best ways to do that? Is there have you found some good strategies like you know breadcrumbing and 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 maybe coach marks and things like that through the process that that give them confidence, right? That they're heading down the path and they're sort of operating and using it and using the tool correctly. Yeah, I think I think we could do more of that. Like I think that is, uh, you know, like giving them affirmation throughout the experience because we do have to gather like a, a lot of really difficult information, right? Like your VIN, for example. We don't. We either have to give us your year maker model or your VIN and like. You either know your year make a model well, or you go out to your car and you get your VIN, which is like a 17 alphanumeric digit 
type code, which is like just very long. Right. Um, so that that's complex. And then you're bending over awkwardly, looking at the door jam. Right. Well, people are probably go about smarter than me, but when I've had to do it, I find myself looking at the door jam on the, the serial number plate. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, before I working at Safelight, I was not a car guy, and I probably couldn't tell you where my VIN was. So like that, it just in general, we have to explain to a customer maybe what is a VIN, uh, where is it, where uh, can it be the, found? Yeah, right? exactly. So like we do have little hints along the way, like with that. But then like additionally, to make sure that we're installing the correct windshield, we have to ask some additional questions even beyond the year making model, which is some more friction that you know we have to make sure that we're getting the right windshield into your car. And to do that, we're trying to ask the most simple question to figure out exactly the type of vehicle that you have. So, like, there is friction points throughout our funnel that we're constantly trying to figure out, you know, ways to make that easier for the customer because it's really difficult to make, you know, to make sure that we have that right windshield for their vehicle. Given the fact that customers are not frequent customers yeah. for you because, we, you know, we, we don't have cracked or broken windshields um, frequently, thankfully, I guess. Some do, like Jeep Wranglers, for example. Oh, really? You probably see like a lot of Jeep oh, Wranglers that's true. just because they're more vertical, right? More so, vertical, yep. and they might be doing a little bit more off-roading, right, yep. and that sort of stuff. Given that, the challenge of sort of retraining them every time that we've talked a little bit about is there. There's also the challenge, or maybe it's a benefit that if they come to Safe Light because they've got a broken you know, windshield, are they a captive audience and are they sort of a captive customer and that their their likelihood of, of bailing out of the, the process and bailing out of the product is is lower because they maybe don't have top of mind alternatives. Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. I mean, it, they're definitely a qualified customer coming to our site, right? Like if you have a broken windshield, you want to get it fixed, yeah. uh, especially if it's like side glass or, you know, somebody broke into your car. That's like... You got to get that fixed today, right? Uh, so that is definitely something that you know is an advantage to Safelight, but because we have to ask them some pretty difficult questions to make sure that we're getting the right windshield, like it is a challenge too. Like we're, we do see some people fall out of the funnel just because it's complicated or uh, you know for other reasons. So that is a challenge for us still. Yeah. Yeah. As you guys think about your digital product footprint. Yeah. The web, I'm, I'm assuming, is probably the primary and, and the, the, the site. Are there other avenues that you're either leveraging now or that you are working on and you're going to be heavier in mobile and, and maybe apps and other well, sorts of we're things? We're already heavier in mobile. Like We have more people booking appointments on the mobile site than we do on desktop already. Okay. But you know, we do also have a lot of people calling in to the contact center to schedule an appointment too because a lot of people just want to talk to a person too. So, But you know, my focus is how do we get more people to the web to, to book their appointment? So we do have those two different areas that people can, can book an appointment. And how much do you, are you looking at and sort of considering new technologies and new abilities for people to communicate, you know, um, a chat bot or something, for instance, right? Where maybe yeah. somebody, somebody's even just getting you the inf- information you need via SMS or something, right? Yep, yeah, Safelight, I, like, you know, when I joined Safelight, it's very clear that they are like very progressive and looking at new technologies. Like down here at Rev One, they have, you know, an innovation lab and a whole team that's researching things like that. So they're constantly looking at the latest technology out there and how can we use it. And the fact that they even have an innovation lab where they're, you know, spinning up, you know, proof of concept for a new technology. It, to me, like I think it's a, I think that's pretty progressive for a company their size. Why do you think that? Given the fact that we all, every company says that they're customer focused, yeah. 
but you know we know that it's that that's not really true because you know that there it's sort of an epiphany when a company actually is yeah do you think that's the same reason why bad products and unsuccessful products still get built is that there is a lack of sort of customer and user alignment and and the bad products get built too much in the image of of the company and the owner and it's a solution in search search of a problem yeah i think you know like i i think you have to be real clear about what your brand is really good at and what your brand doesn't have to be good at you know to to be able to build a great product francis have you ever heard of francis fry before she wrote the book on common service yeah okay so she she has this kind of concept where it's like in order to differentiate yourself with customer experience you have to have the courage to really be bad at the things that your customers don't care about so that you have the bandwidth to be great at the things that your customers do care about so like she gives the example within like southwest brand like you don't really expect a hot meal and a lot of legroom when you are on a southwest flight right but like maybe you you probably do expect the flight attendant to like hold your crying baby while you go to the bathroom right so like southwest customers value you know friendly flight attendants and cheap price right and don't really care about like a hot meal so like to develop the right product that's in line with your customer, I feel like you have to be real clear about what you want to be great at with your brand and focus on that and leave the things that you don't want to be great at or you, your customers don't care for you to be great at at the wayside. Yeah, is that hard to is that hard to define what your customers don't want you to be good at? Yeah, I, I think so because I think it's really hard to be like... Because first you have to ask them what they don't, care about and yeah. what they don't want you to be good at, which is a very vulnerable position yeah. for a company, right, and, and products to be in. And most of us are not willing to be that vulnerable to get, to intentionally ask for sort of negative feedback. Right? Yeah, totally. And I think when it comes to the brand, it, it almost starts with like, what do we stand for? Like, what is the thing that we, what is our brand promise? And if that is a strong identity, then I think it, it's a lot easier to do and see if, it, if that resonates with your customer. So it's almost like you take a stand and then ask, like, is this resonating, you know? Mm-hmm. Product has become now sort of a, a, it's shifted where 10 years ago, maybe maybe not that long ago, product really meant a physical product. Yeah. Now product by and large, at least in the industry, yeah. really means digital products and really means software. Yeah. Um, so that's been an interesting, interesting shift in retail and then in like at SafeLight, when you guys talk about product, does it reference digital or is it the, the overall experience in, in totality? How do you guys sort of think about product inside of SafeLight as, as what it represents? Yeah, I, so within SafeLight, each kind of Spark team is what we call them, our, our agile teams have a product owner so like there there's a product owner for fulfillment so it's like our back end of our site so like they're thinking of it more of you know someone who prioritizes new features to digital products so yeah i think it is it is focused on digital and maybe that's just in my world but within safe light but i think like yeah it is focused on digital so talk a little bit about your team structure and i'm assuming you guys are agile yep and your teams are probably pretty small, and it sounds like you've structured them in around very micro aspects yep. of the products. Yeah. Uh, um, so talk about how that how that structure is 
by and large across those micro areas of the product and then how each of those teams executes independently and then sort of together. Yeah, so we probably fluctuate, at least within the digital, and when I say digital, I mean kind of safelight.com and our funnel. We have uh, probably six to eight developers, a QA team, a BA team, and then, so that's kind of like the, the and the you know, software engineering lead, a scrum master, and that is the kind of main team, and then we have the UX team, a product owner, analytics, kind of all supporting the features that are kind of get pushed through that, that stream. How much autonomy and ownership does the product owner have? Do they get to make the call on ultimately what gets in and how things get prioritized? Yeah, so like SafeLight's really good about that. Like as, as the product owner of digital, like I do have like autonomy as far as like how things get prioritized. Like I think the challenge for me is like, how do I look at all of these different priorities? Like that are coming in across the company and say like, this one's more important than this one and this one. So constantly there's 10 important things. So like, how do we get right. the most important thing out of those 10 important things delivered in time? So you know? how, have you, how have you gotten good or at least comfortable maybe with that ruthless prioritization? Because we're not really wired as people to be ruthless prioritizers, right? Yeah. We, we, we would prefer to like have our options open, right? Yep. And, and not definitively have to say, this one is above this one and is above this one. Yeah, I mean, it's a constant, I feel like I'm constantly spinning plates, right? Great, like which one is the most important? I think it's not like a product manager or a product owner or whatever can make that decision in silo, right? Like I feel like product owners have to be really good listeners as far as the different priorities throughout the company and then make sure that different business units are talking and making sure that, you know, a measurable ROI is there potentially, or we're solving a customer problem, or this is a huge company initiative. And so we're constantly kind of figuring out which lever is most important at that given time. So I think uh, the more we listen and understand from other people within the business unit, like how important this is, I think that's the most important thing is figuring out what kind of value it's bringing to the company. And it doesn't always have to be monetary value. It's like, maybe this is a strategic initiative. This is a brand initiative for us to be moving in this direction. And we need to make this move now. How can, once you have prioritized something um, highly and you begin to work on it and, and to go down that path to manifest it, how committed are you to seeing that all the way through? Or are you continually juxtaposing its priority even in something that's in flight with other things that are in flight or maybe something that you haven't even started yet yeah are you willing to hit the pause button or stop working on something that can get deprioritized by something else that pops up totally i think that's uh constantly happening and i feel like i owe the dev teams like so many beers because we've we've come like last minute or like two days left in the sprint and we're like, hey, actually we need to slide this one in there uh, and making sure that you have a really good, like that's agile, right? Like that's being saying like, hey, I know I prioritized this last week as like the number one thing, but there's this other thing coming down and we need to get it done really quick. And so being able to rally around those things, I think we're definitely committed to doing that because we have such good IT partners that are willing to say like, okay, like this is crazy. I wish I would have known about this like two weeks ago. Me too. Let's figure out how to get this done. So Right. I'm actually not intentionally screwing you over. Yeah, yeah. But like when stuff like that happens, I think it's always important to circle back at the end and be like, okay, like how could we have known about this earlier? Like 
where was the breakdown in communication that we just found out about this in the nick of time? So we try and do postmortems after that and say like, okay, this wasn't an ideal experience. I'm really grateful that we got it all done. Like, this is awesome that we did it as a team, but how do we like, you know, what do we learn from this? Never let a good crisis go to waste, right? Like, Right. Yeah. And it's, you know, sometimes having that earlier visibility just isn't there, right? Yeah. Totally. I mean, sometimes things just opportunities, challenges, problems, whatever, just pop up. Yeah. And, and that is your first recognition of the fact that this is something that needs to get addressed. Yeah. Right? And so as much as we would like to be planned and thoughtful and, and prioritize, there are unknowns that come up and things that, that you couldn't expect that then have to be dealt with and have to be prioritized. And it's it's less than ideal, but that's just the reality, right, of being dynamic yeah. and being willing to react to those things, right? Because yeah. there are lots of organizations and lots of digital teams that don't, right? They they stay committed to this is what we had planned for the sprint or this is even what we had planned for this the roadmap of this product yeah. over this period of time. And we're not going to inject anything new in, into this. And those organizations are, are less sort of pure agile and they're you know, I guess, you know, operating a little bit in a waterfall mentality, right? Of even yep. though they op- they might be executing in sprints, right? If they're saying we're not going to let anything come in and, and inject into this, yeah, then they're still sort of saying we're going to execute based upon some known requirements and known scope. And we're not going to let anything, you know, change that. And we're not going to, pr- we're not going to prioritize or deprioritize based upon new information. Totally. And like, ideally that doesn't, it doesn't happen all the time, right? Like, hopefully you are, for the most part, strategic and... Right. Otherwise, uh, we would all be functioning alcoholics. Yeah, 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 for sure. But like, I always think, like, the more we can share, like, why this is a priority now, uh, when, we, when we're able to do that and have, like, real clear why to the team, it's like, okay. And then, and then you almost get, like, this kind of, like, late-night buzz of, like, okay, we're going to work all night and we're going to get it done. And there's a lot of, like, really good team morale around, like, hey, we... We had this challenge in front of us. We did it in a day, and we got it out the door. Like, this is great. And it ends up, like, even though it's hard in the moment, we can look back at it and be like, yeah, we really are an agile team, and here's a great example of it. Are there any processes or tools or methodologies that you hold sacred that you just can't live without and that you hold sort of so near and dear that you rarely if ever violate them yeah i think uh with the thing that i focus on a lot with every any feature that we launch onto the site is like it needs to have an opportunity statement like we need to know why we're doing this like what is the opportunity in front of us and then it has to have a good measurement plan like i think oftentimes measurement gets forgotten with the features so like we're hey we're doing this feature and we're launching it and it's already in you know in production how's it doing? And then everybody looks at the analytics team and they're like, um, we don't, we don't have anything like tagged on this at we all. We don't actually know. We don't know. Uh, and so if like in the ideation of a new feature, if having a good, you know, opportunity statement and then a definition of success with a measurement plan behind that, I think those are two things that, that I really try to make sure that no feature goes in without those two things. How do you guys structure your opportunity statements? Are they more sort of hypothesis based or are they more, I guess, more problem sort of focused necessarily than sort of opportunity focused? Or do you focus them more in the positive and truly as sort of an opportunity statement? So it's usually rooted in some sort of like 
data or customer feedback or both. So like sometimes we'll say, okay, we're seeing a bunch of people drop off on this page. And when we look at survey feedback, we're hearing this from the customer. So we believe that this is a viable solution to the problem that we're seeing. So uh, one thing at Abercrombie, they were always like, nothing's a problem, everything's an opportunity, right? So like they never called it a problem statement. So I've probably taken that with me of like, it's always an opportunity statement. Here's our opportunity. We're seeing a ton of people drop off. We're hearing this from our customer and here's the feature that we're gonna implement and we'll know it's a success because we'll see less people drop off on this page. We'll see an increase in conversion and we'll see you know, less anecdotal feedback about our customers saying you know, whatever about, our, about this problem. Yeah. You know. Where do you think um, customer experience is sort of a new discipline? Yeah. Um, I mean, product is sort of a new discipline. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's, it's, so it's, it's funny that we, um, product has now become ubiquitous with sort of software and digital products. Yeah. That's still relative, a still relatively new occurrence. And that's because product as sort of a discipline and a craft um, is still relatively new. Yeah, I feel like nobody's really an expert at product at all. You know, maybe Steve Jobs is probably an expert at that. But, like, I don't know. Like, I, I still feel very, like, green to product management and new to it. And each feature that we launch, it's like, oh, God, we probably had one too many variables in that feature. Or, you know, like, you're constantly learning, like, okay, we need to reduce, reduce variables in this situation. Or there's constant lessons that we're always learning that, like, I think... I don't know that anybody, any product manager would be like, I am an expert. I don't know. Yeah. And, and creating anything is just ridiculously hard. Yeah. Right? And creating something that actually works and, the, and, and that succeeds is 100 times harder. Yeah. And it's taking a vision and communicate, making sure like it gets executed with, you know, six different ta- like talented people all trying to create that vision. You know, it's so, like with different backgrounds and like being able to communicate with all those people, I think is communicate effectively as a team is um, probably some of the biggest challenge. So where do you think we're headed with product sort of as a discipline? Do you think that 10 years from now we are going to be producing people that are going to be coming out of training and sort of education and be product sort of experts, right? And yeah. and, and focus solely on, on being product managers and owners and they will they will not have started where, you know, you started sort of on the front lines of, of customer service and customer experience yeah. and then sort of came up through customer experience. I started it out as, as a developer, right, and then sort of morphed into product as more holistically. Most people in products now started somewhere else. Yeah. Right. Do you think that we're on a path now where we are going to be creating product people that start in product versus starting somewhere else? I think so. I think it'll become a lot more data heavy than it is now. Like there's all these different software solutions now that are like getting real crazy about like minute web behavior and generating like new feature. Like AI is like pushing a new feature idea up to potentially just a UX designer or a product manager that's saying, okay, like, I think insights will be surfaced automatically via data. Like, <laughs> right. You know, like I, I wonder like users are doing this. There must be a button here. Yeah. Must build do button. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think so like there, I think there'll always have to be a human saying like, no, no, no robot. You're a little bit uh, off or we need to calibrate this robot a little bit better. But like, I think data will play a more significant role than maybe it does now. So do you think that that means that we're going to have 
that product and product management is even going to shift a little bit and we are going to have, uh, for lack of a better term, data product managers that a, a sort of a hybrid of, of what we now know is product management and, and product ownership and data scientists and data analytics. Yeah, I think I could see them working and, together much more frequently, but I, right now I just feel like even today product managers have to have a strong like data analytics background. Like I, I would find it hard to like write a good op- opportunity statement without like rooting it somewhere in data. Or even if you're looking at customer feedback, like how do you spot the trend and not be reactive to you know some open text feedback that you're getting? You know, like you need to put it through a text analytics engine and understand like the trend at scale and can you quantify that? And I think that's going to play much more of a role like going forward. But like product managers have to have that data side to it in my mind. Yeah, I agree. Any final thoughts or comments that you'd like to make about sort of customer experience and product overall? I don't know. I I think I'm kind of excited to see where it goes. You know, like I think there's a ton of opportunity to be putting, you know, customer feedback and data and your brand at the crosshairs of like new product features. And the more we can do that in an accurate way, I think the better products that are going to look uh, in the future. So Sounds like a book. Yeah. Sounds, sounds like you should be writing a, a book about the intersection of brand, customer experience, and uh, product. Yeah. So Maybe someday. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'll write the foreword. Perfect. Done. And, and um, you know, there'll be some small royalty attached to it, yeah. I'm sure. But, 50, you know. 60%. I'm sure. Exactly. Yeah. Small. Yeah. You're totally in alignment with my thinking. Yeah. Tim, thanks for doing this. Thanks I for appreciate having me. it. This is Brian Frederick with the AWH. Thanks for joining us. Need some help with product? AWH is a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm here to help you create great digital products. Check out www.awh.net or follow us on Twitter at AWHnet to learn more.